0: Hey everyone, it's Mike DiCibato of ESG Now. This week was Climate Week in New York City. It's a time when international leaders from business, government, and civil society get together and discuss the local, regional, and global efforts made toward combating and adapting to climate change. We, MSCI, hosted some of those events where people came and chatted, and I attended some of them. And it was a reminder of the joys that an unscripted in-person conversation can bring, something that was momentarily lost due to the pandemic. And so today I want to play you a couple clips from one of them that I found particularly interesting. It was called the Infrastructure Finance for the Energy Transition and Climate Adaptation, a pithy title. Indeed. And it was about what has already changed because of the recently passed U.S. climate law called the Inflation Reduction Act. And quickly, I want to throw a clip at you because it was one of the more interesting ones. It was between our excellent moderator, Sue Reed, who is the climate finance advisor of global optimism. And she asked Kim Carnahan, who was a panelist and is the senior director for the net zero fuels at NG Impact, how net zero fuels are going to change due to these subsidies provided by the Inflation Reduction Act.
1: The Inflation Reduction Act has helped us, um, has really made a, a game change. It is a game changer, I should say, when it comes to our decisions to invest in the U.S. Um, because just for example to be very concrete, um, the green hydrogen subsidy in IRA is three dollars a kilogram for the kind of hydrogen that we produce. Um, three dollars a kilogram means that instead of waiting another ten years for green hydrogen to be cost competitive with uh, blue hydrogen or be cost competitive with diesel, it's now cost competitive today. <laughs> in most of the US where you can build where you can build green hydrogen plants, uh, we can now do it and sell it at a rate that is cost competitil- com- cost competitive with. Um, You know, we thought it was going to take another 10 years for it to be cost competitive with diesel. So that's huge. Um, But more importantly, it actually brings up the cost competitiveness with natural gas as well In in many states in the U.S. In Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, we can now make green hydrogen at a price that is cost competitive with natural gas. Talk. I mean, that is a game changer, right? That really changes when investors are looking at where they're going to invest in projects. They should be looking at green hydrogen projects today very differently than they were two months ago.
0: That's a pretty bullish statement, sure, and people can argue the point. It's Kim Carnahan's opinion, but it's also based on things she is seeing on the ground that makes this regulation more tangible than regulations can sometimes often feel, because. Now that the law is passed, she's already seeing uptake in certain aspects of green hydrogen. Here she is again on that point.
1: In particular, what we're seeing is the most interest from distributed generate distributed use of hydrogen. So I have a lot of clients who are looking to use hydrogen in place of diesel for heavy duty um, trucking or for off grid power generation, and they have wanted to do that for years now. But there was the green hydrogen didn't exist to do it, and more importantly, the companies to provide you know to to, to bridge that gap uh, between. The producers, NG, and who's going to get it to wherever it needs to be, um, and actually distribute it. So that role is really important, and I'm I'm interested to see. I mean, NG may just decide to take on that role ourselves because it's been so hard to find someone to fill it. Um, But but it'll be interesting to see who starts to fill those intermediary roles. And then also, you hear a lot about you know, in order to get very large scale projects off the ground, you companies like ours normally need to see an offtake agreement of at least 5 10 years a large scale offtake agreement you know you want an anchor offtaker to feel comfortable when you're making a 200 plus million dollar investment um, we've had a really hard time to be quite frank finding those anchor offtakers because the price was so high now with the IRA um, it'll be much easier because Again, it's cost competitive with diesel. It's going to be soon be cost competitive with natural gas. Once you find those um, anchor off takers, then you can find the intermediary and distribute to all of the other off-takers who have just been waiting.
0: By the way, an off-take agreement is an agreement between a producer and a buyer to purchase or sell portions of the producer's upcoming goods. So what Carnahan is talking about here is that because of the Inflation Reduction Act, there are now people ready to make long-term investments in the purchase of green hydrogen, which weren't there before, and which will lower the overall cost of the green hydrogen projects on the market and make all of them more bankable. Now, this wasn't just a conversation between Kim Carnahan and Sue Reed. The panelist itself consisted of Kim Carnahan, obviously, Valerie Hanna of Brookfield Asset Management's Renewable Power and Transition Group, Bruce Schleen of the Global Head of ESG at the Infrastructure Division for the Ontario Municipal Employees Retirement Systems, or OMERS, and our very own Elsham of MSCI ESG Research. The discussion was U.S. focused and revolved around technology and progress and what subsidies and the Inflation Reduction Act can do for clean tech, with some specifics like green hydrogen given throughout. As I listened to the panel, my ears would prick up at such moments as I've already played, those that described emissions reduction systems that have already been put into place, such as this discussion between Bruce Schleen and the moderator Sue Reed about how the information and communications technologies, or the IT sector, as they call it, can help drive a reduction in energy use alongside the more talked about large-scale renewable energy investments, and at the same time, how the information and communications technology sector can help many communities adapt to the changing climate.
2: I think an interesting area in, I don't know what to call it, alternative infrastructure, great example, virtual power plants. So the recent almost brownouts or blackouts in California were partially avoided by software companies who have some degree of control over assets in households or small businesses and were able to flip them off you know refrigerators, ACs, turn them down, tens of thousands at a time to help avert you know these crises. Um, What's interesting from an infrastructure point of view is that, you know, there's a scale question, and I think there's also a little bit of like business model question, and I'll I'll do this really quickly. So, typical, you know, project finance, you've got um, you have an offtake agreement, you have a machine in the middle, and you have feedstock. In a virtual power plant, you've got the offtake set through regulation, you've got feedstock, and signing up households or properties. It's that middle piece which is very different. Like the project finance world is not accustomed to looking at software and thinking about a backup service provider or an independent engineer to validate that it's gonna work. And so there are things like that that we have to work through.
3: Awesome, thank you so much for that. I think um, the ICT elements, um, the the tech elements of this often are overlooked. um, And I can't help but exert um, moderator's privilege to flag things like the virtual power plants, um, uh, others refer to areas of the technology as demand um, response, um, are extraordinary with so many collateral unintended benefits like software-driven systems with a flip of a switch where a whole chain of convenience stores can slightly increase their temperature in the summer and dim their and then they're finding customers are happier as they're coming in from the heat outside and it's more comfortable that transition they stay longer they buy more hopefully sustainable goods um, and not over purchasing but um, but all good
0: this wasn't the last time the social dimensions of climate change and efforts to mitigate or adapt its effects were mentioned in another interesting exchange sue reed asked bruce Schlein directly about the social aspect of the climate law.
3: I'd love to get into more of the human equation, the social equation. So how are you looking at it from a pension plan perspective in terms of the energy transition, the social and equitable elements of it? How are you approaching that?
2: It's a, it's a great question. And we, we do hear that question from, from our members. Uh, so it, it is a topic that comes up. And, you know, one, one of the great things about the IRA is just how much, of the IRA is oriented around uh, you know, social justice and equity, uh, and so you mentioned community solar, right? Community solar has, I think, an access component to it. Um, you're you're able to onboard tenants or subscribers, if you will, who might not have the same credit quality uh, that um, that a you know rooftop solar company. Single family might be um, requiring uh, because they're able to substitute um, subscribers, right? So if somebody goes into arrears or defaults, the community solar operator has the ability to replace that, uh, that person. All this, I think, is so important because solar uh, clean energy often comes with some a discount to the off taker. The people who, in this country at least, who are best able to access clean energy are most likely those who don't need that discount, right? Um, they're not so concerned uh, about the marginal differences in their utility bills. So we need this from a, like, we're all in it together. Um, we need everyone's support to kind of make this transition happen. And all communities need to benefit, not just from job new job opportunities, but also the direct benefits of accessing renewable energy. Community solar is a great example. PACE is a good example. And I'll just throw one out, one more out there on the data side. Uh, there's one company, I'll just mention, uh, uh, Posigen, that actually underwrites single-family rooftop solar, not with income, not with credit. They just look at the household and say, with our modest efficiency improvements plus solar on the roof, will we save you, I think it's $40 a month. That's it. Plus, they'll take the panels back, okay? So the household is highly motivated to sign on because they're going to get that discount, and they're unlocking this market that um, the rest of the rooftop world doesn't have access to because they're underwriting using FICO.
0: He's not wrong. According to research published by MIT, 80% of Americans have not been able to access rooftop solar because they either don't own a home, they have a low credit or FICO score, and or they don't live in a state with policies that require utilities to compensate you for the energy you produce, which is extremely important. Researchers at the University of California, Berkeley found that the inaccessibility gets even worse in neighborhoods with more black and Hispanic residents, even when they controlled for household income or home ownership levels. As many are well aware, the Inflation Reduction Act does try to address this problem of inaccessibility in both an indirect way through subsidies and tax credits for technologies that will trickle down to everyone, but also in a direct way as part of its allocated funds are specifically put toward making clean energy more affordable and accessible. So it sounds like there is nothing bad to say about the Inflation Reduction Act or government's attempts to address climate change, and that is because they played you all the happy clips that we had for this panel. But here are two of our panelists, Valerie Hanna and Bruce Schlein, throwing a small, not a massive, but a small dash of reality on the party by noting the challenges that still await.
4: First, we'll hear from Hanna. Look, I mean, in terms of... The Inflation Reduction Act, I mean, it is uh, definitely a signature um, legislation that's passed. And definitely, when you're looking at how it's been approached in terms of, you know, the different technologies and the different communities that are involved in in sort of the incentives that are being rolled out, um, I think of it as a, a fantastic accelerant to growth in the transition. When you're looking at the overall sort of, capital required to actually transition globally, you're looking at in excess of $150 trillion. So governments cannot finance that alone. They cannot take on that amount of debt and run those amount of deficits. So definitely private finance has to come in to the mix here. And what the Inflation Reduction Act does is it actually gives us that visibility to be able to actually look at opportunities and underwrite them and have that more long-term visibility into those valuations.
0: And now here is Bruce Schlein discussing some of the challenges in both who is responsible for changing assets, carbon emissions, and cybersecurity in a digitally connected world.
2: So much of the conversation, so much of the work is around decarbonization pathways that are technology focused. Many of our portfolio companies have energy managers. They they know what technologies they need. What they're really struggling with, I think, are the execution models. how do you overcome tenant, the tenant-landlord dynamic in a port, for example, where the landlord is responsible for some assets, the tenant is responsible for others? Who goes first? How do we coordinate that? How do we ensure, right, those dynamics uh, work well? Um, cybersecurity. How do we ensure that, you know, many solution, many decarbonization solutions involve networking assets, networking small assets, internet of things. How do we balance the risk between, you know, decarbonization and those assets being vulnerable to cyber threats? It's those questions to me that feel like are coming to the fore for which the IRA I think is helpful, but so too are a whole host of local initiatives. I'll just mention one here in New York city. We have a newly launched pace program in New York city Um, which does all kinds of things to help solve some of these structural issues around underlying credit quality, time horizon for payback, things like that.
0: So after this, the conversation then went toward the role of companies and investors to transition the energy system that we already have in place, not to the new and thus interesting, but to the old and needing of repairs. For this, Elchin makes an interesting point on how we might look at companies that are dealing with dirty energy. Should you be looking at a company without any dirty assets as a high achiever there? Or should you look at ones with dirty assets that are working to clean them? I'll let Sue Reed set this up.
3: So shifting gears a little bit, we're of course not starting from a blank slate for better and worse, right? We have all of these um, energy systems already built up, very carbon intensive as they are. So um, can we talk now and shift gears to what does it look like from an investor and finance perspective in terms of that transition? So all of this existing high carbon infrastructure, how are you approaching it?
5: The way I see it, it's really important for the investors to engage with utility companies and oil and gas companies and heavy industry companies, those heavy emitters, in order to help them deliver decarbonization. And just as an example, we had a German utility, RWE, which has a lot of legacy coal-fired power plants, and they mine coal. And the biggest sovereign wealth fund in the world decided to di- divest from it. And, 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 and I was shocked, to be honest, because, yes, it's the biggest emitter in Europe, the company. However, they have clear plan to decarbonize, they have interim targets, their targets cover all three scopes emission. And I'm not talking about twenty forty, which they're gonna be net zero by but twenty thirty. Uh, and ninety five percent of their capex is going towards renewables and battery storage. And yet they're being, you know, pushed to you know, sell their assets to make them look good. I think the role of investor is to engage with those companies, and just make sure they deliver on them. And again, it's up to ESG experts like you to distinguish between companies that are trying to do the right thing, that are trying to manage the decline of their fossil fuel business responsibly rather than to sell it off to privately owned company that doesn't have to report anything. And they they can fund it at, at a bit higher rate, but so be it.
0: So this has just been a small portion of the hour long talk, but you can actually stream on the MSCI events page, by the way, just search for the easy to remember title, the infrastructure finance for the energy transition and climate adaptation or IFETCAP. What I will leave you with today is the ending of the panel where the panelists discuss two things. One, efforts in climate adaptation directly and, as is always useful for our distracted minds, their main takeaways for the day.
3: And so we're going to jump to adaptation, often the, the lost stepchild in this mix, and it can't continue to be. We expect it to be really centered with the next conference of the parties on the UN um, climate framework negotiations this November in Sharm el-Sheikh Egypt. Um, how are you as investors looking at the adaptation equation? What's the role of private finance versus public finance in this space? Um, how, how are you approaching it? What are the opportunities and challenges at a high level? And and if we could do rapid fire for this one in the interest of time. I'll I'll jump
2: in quickly. So, you know, they have to be looked at together hand-in-hand, decarbonization, adaptation. Solar, when it's too hot, the performance of a solar panel decreases, right? So there are ways to deploy solar, agrivoltaics, cool ground temperature. So you're both, you know, mitigating
5: climate and you're, you know, you have a more resilient performing asset. Uh, I would just say that politicians and governments need to do a better job of making a lot of these adaptation projects bankable, you know, so be that through better legislation, certain performance standards, something to help banks and investors to, you know, put money in that project. Otherwise, if there's little or vague legislation or there's no incentive mechanism to at least de-risk a large portion of that investment that you're making, that that, that that means that a lot of there'll be a lot of talk and not a lot of work.
1: Yeah, I mean, like Bruce, we're thinking of it kind of hand in hand, whether we're looking at a project that we're investing in or we're advising a client. Um, I had a port client, for example, and when they were deciding how they were going to transition to clean energy at the port at the exact same time, they were also having us assess the resiliency of the port and making sure that it was going to be able to withstand the climate change that we know is going to happen. So we are seeing it being just completely mixed in. Not sep- the, the projects that I'm working on, they're not separating out adaptation as a separate piece, but they are starting to pay more attention to it.
3: So we do need to wrap up. Parting words um, from from each panelist. Why don't we go right down the line in terms of if there's one thing, not to put you on the spot, but I'm going to. If there's one thing you'd want this audience to take away, walk away from this room with.
2: Um, I think confidence, too, is going to be really important. And by that, I mean there are a whole host of benefits that you've noted, right, that come with the transition. Jobs, local air quality, right? Um, The... The benefits of climate change, we might not see them, right, for several decades. So I think we have to think about how to tell the story of the clean transition
5: in a broader way and help build confidence in doing so. The biggest change that I'm, I'm expecting to see is that 10 years ago, when offshore wind was a nascent technology, very few companies touched it. And then infrastructure funds started investing in it, but only at a stage where the projects were operational. And nowadays they're investing at earlier planning stages, etc. So I think we're going to see the same trend happening with all the other technologies. You know, as the financial community becomes more comfortable with risk, you know, and adjusting it for the right return. So I, I'm very hopeful because there's no one technology that is going to deliver decarbonization. And it's nice to see financial community saying, OK, I was investing for oil and gas. I know how it works. I'm going to continue doing it. Now they're investing in wind, uh, virtual power plants and energy efficiency and a whole suite of other solutions, hydrogen. So yeah, so that's the hope I have uh, for the change, yeah.
1: Uh, Yeah, I I mean, I think it's important to note that IRA didn't bring all the technologies we need to cost competitiveness. There's still a lot of technologies that are um, you know, viable now that are starting to be used that come at a premium. Uh, I also work in a lot of projects around sustainable aviation fuel. Sustainable aviation fuel will continue to have a premium even with the IRA. And frankly, that premium may go up depending upon how, what technology, what feedstock we're using to create uh, the sustainable aviation fuel. So what we're starting to think about are ways to um, uh, monetize, basically, the, the scope three attribute of whatever you're selling. So for sustainable aviation fuel, the entities that actually want to pay that premium are those flying on the planes, not the ones who are buying the fuel. So finding a way to create two revenue streams for projects so that you're not just signing a deal with United Airlines or an offtake agreement with United Airlines, you're also signing an offtake agreement with a consortium of Microsoft and Salesforce and McKinsey and Bain and these companies that want to decarbonize their travel or the transport of goods by air.
3: Thank you all so much for this amid the formidable challenges of the systemic transitions um, that we have to make. It's incredible to hear this, a sense of um, palpable momentum, optimism, and opportunity. So please join me in thanking this tremendous panel. Thank you all.
0: And that's it for the week. I want to thank you so much for listening. I want to thank all the panelists and the moderator for letting me use their audio for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate and review us. It's useful for other people to find our podcast. And subscribe if you want to hear my or Bentley's voices every week. Thanks again, and talk to you soon.
6: The MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc. subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research, LLC, a registered investment advisor, and the Investment Advisors Act of 1940, and this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.